I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, first gospel, both in the Greek and in the English New Testament. Interesting how the gospels came to be ordered the way they did. This has pretty much always been the order of the gospels, even in the Greek and Latin Vulgate. Matthew chapter 13. In light of the Christmas season, we're going to explore a very important question. Young people, I want your attention. Kids, adults, this is very applicable, not just at Christmas time. And it's this question Why is it so many people, especially young people these days, reject Jesus? Why is there a turning away from the one who offers salvation, deliverance from our sin? and the hope of eternal life. Why would anybody choose hell over heaven? And there's many verses about people's rejection of Jesus. I'll read you one Old Testament, one New Testament. First, the New Testament, John's Gospel. He came to his own, this is Jesus coming to Palestine for a century, and his own people did not accept him, did not receive him. Tragic verse from John chapter 1. But then 700 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah declared, a very tragic verse. Looking ahead 700 years, forecasting, prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit. Interesting, the only prophecy we know of in the Bible that's written in the past tense. Isaiah 53, 3. Speaking of Messiah Jesus, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of sorrows, familiar with grief. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. The situation hasn't changed that much today. In any congregation this size, there are those sitting out here who are currently rejecting Jesus. Even those who openly mock Jesus, which raises a simple question again, why would anybody reject the love of a Savior who offers them eternal life, offers them heaven over hell? And by the way, this isn't just an issue with secular people. This is an issue with religious people. There are people who sit in churches year in and year out who reject Christ. There are clergy who preach regularly who are not Christians and are rejecting Jesus. And so the question is, why? And when we go to the New Testament, there are a number of reasons offered. I'm going to look at just six this morning. I was kidded a couple times this morning. Good heavens, this is going to be a long sermon. There's six points. I could say, well, yeah, okay, there's more than this, but I'm going to just keep it to six, so we're going to go easy here. But there are more than this. I just want to look at six that rise to the surface in the Gospels, in the teaching of Jesus, why people reject him. He was very clear about this. And we're going to just take these in order as they come through the Gospels, beginning in Matthew chapter 13. First reason Jesus indicates why people would reject him, why you might be rejecting him this morning, is this, simply the cares of the world, cares of ourselves, our issues, things we got to take care of. We get distracted and we end up missing Christ as Savior. Matthew chapter 13, one of the most common reasons people reject Jesus is they're just simply distracted by the cares and worries of life. This is illustrated by this story in Matthew 13. Very simple story. Some of you know Jesus loved to tell stories. Although most of his preaching wasn't storytelling. That's also a misnomer. But he did tell stories on occasion, some very good ones. This one was about a farmer. 
in the old days that would take seeds from a bag and scatter it. And as he did, the seed landed different kinds of ground and had different kinds of responses depending on the dirt and the soil and all that. Jesus took his disciples aside, explains the story to them, and says the seed represents the word, the gospel. And then the different types of soil and the different kinds of responses of the seed represents different heart responses to the gospel, different kinds of people and how they respond to the gospel. And one of those seeds lands on what Jesus called thorny ground. And you might call this the distracted person. Jesus actually explains this. Verse 22, one of the responses of the gospel landing on certain kinds of people is just being distracted and they don't embrace the gospel. Matthew 13, 22, the seed, again, seed is the gospel, the word, that fell on thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, choke the gospel, making it unfruitful. So Jesus explains, this is the kind of person who hears the gospel, maybe sitting in a church, maybe hearing it on TV, maybe hearing it over the internet, they've been exposed to the gospel, but the message gets choked out by just simply the worries and concerns of life, our jobs, our kids. Flooded basements, flat tires, our hobbies, our chores, our investments, our portfolios, on and on and on and on the list goes. And pretty soon we are so distracted, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, we give very little thought to the afterlife, very little thought to spiritual matters. We may be even a regular church attender, but it's really not that much of a thing. We check the box, we keep going. And we're far more consumed with the worries of average living and daily life, and we miss Christ. Could that be you this morning, young person? Might that be you this morning? Jesus is very clear. This is a very real issue why people do reject him. Second reason Jesus indicated, Matthew chapter 22. Hope you brought a Bible because we are diving deep. Our issue is always, what does the text say? What does scripture say? We are a people of the book. That is why, by the way, we put Bibles outside of our auditorium. We hope that you make use of those. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep one of those and take it home. But we want even that visual reminder as we come into this auditorium, we believe in an inspired book. We believe in a sacred scripture in which God has spoken and we're tethered to it. And so we announce it week after week. That's why we put a big chunk of our service into preaching and teaching. Matthew 22, what is the second reason people reject Jesus? Because of ignorance of the scriptures. They just don't know. And again, this isn't just, quote, the heathen who've never heard. The example here are religious leaders. So that's a key here. Religious leaders. Matthew 22, we meet a group of religious leaders who rejected Jesus. And Jesus himself tells them it's because of their ignorance of the scriptures. The group is called the Sadducees. They are the theological liberals of the day. They were well-educated, they were sophisticated, they were politically aligned with Rome. Even though they're Jewish, their sympathies were there, but they were the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in an afterlife, they didn't believe in heaven, they didn't believe in hell, they didn't believe in angels or demons, they really didn't believe in the message of salvation, they didn't believe in a a Messiah coming, they were theological, they were basically anti-supernaturalists. And starting in verse 27... We see them throwing a trick question at Jesus. Anybody ever play gotcha with you? Of course, people play gotcha. 
You know, people do that all the time with us. They play gotcha. They're trying to, they're trying to get you. We know they're playing gotcha here with him because they didn't believe in an afterlife and their question involves a hypothetical question about the afterlife, which they didn't even affirm. <clears throat> so here's the question and then we'll unpack it. Starting in verse 27, Matthew chapter 22, verse 27, I'll read down through verse <clears throat> 33. Finally, the woman died. So it's a woman who's been married to a series of brothers, all who keep dying. Now, it's not a true story. He's telling this as an example. But nonetheless, this woman, she marries brother one, he dies, brother two, brother three. You think by the fourth or fifth brother, they'd start getting suspicious of what was going on here. But nonetheless, this is the story. Then they get to the death and the resurrection, and their gotcha question is, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Brother number one, brother number two, brother number three. You get the point. Finally, the woman died. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since, one, since all of them were married to her? So Jesus replies, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes on to explain, the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. So the bottom line, Jesus makes it clear. The reason the Sadducees, these religious leaders rejected Jesus and his offer of salvation and eternal life and forgiveness and avoiding the wrath of God and judgment is because they did not understand the scriptures. And these were religious people. These were people familiar with Judaism. And the same thing, friends, happens today when people, especially religious people, sit in churches, listen year in and year out, but they really don't grasp what the Bible is saying. And they don't understand the scriptures. There is a plague of shallow theology that is settled over evangelicalism in the West, whether in prosperity theology or any of the other kinds of false gospels out there, the gospel of moralism, the LGBTQ gospel, whatever it is, ignorance of the scriptures, shallow theology prevails in our, in, in our, in our culture. It's everywhere. It's in the Christian so-called book market. It's on so-called Christian television. And it's a very real threat. Young people, it is a very real threat. And just because a publisher claims to be a Christian publisher, and just because they publish a book, remember, and this isn't bad, publishers exist to make money. They need to, or they can't be in business. Making money isn't bad. But it's just a reminder, just because there's a Christian label on it doesn't necessarily mean it's spiritually good. It could be toxic. And the ignorance of the scriptures is an ever-present issue. And here Jesus nails them. Third one is pride. And that's just the next chapter, Matthew 23. One of the most common reasons people reject Jesus and his offer of salvation is pride, arrogance, haughtiness, ultimately hatred of God. One of the groups that Jesus was probably the harshest with is in this chapter. These are the religious conservatives of the day. 
So it's interesting, Jesus goes after the religious liberals and he goes after the religious conservatives of the day. These were the Pharisees. A lot of people, not all people are familiar with the Pharisees, but some who are know the term. Religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were sort of the spiritual elite forces of the day. A lot of people hear the term today and they think of the phrase kind of as a pejorative. The Pharisees originally rose in between the Old and New Testament. They were very good motives. Their motives were to call people back to the law, to the Torah, as people were wandering away and spiritually falling apart, sinning, disobeying God. The Pharisees arose as a group to call people back. Their name means the separated ones. That's not bad. It's good. And they were calling people back to God's law, back to holiness, back to godliness. That's good. Problem is, over the centuries, as they began to pile up traditions and then put fences around those traditions and make those traditions as sacred as the scriptures, they became pharisaical, they became hypocritical, they became self-righteous, and they became basically legalistic, grumpy referees, throwing penalty flags on people all over the place. Jesus goes after him here, and he nails him. This chapter is full of what we would call the woes. I'm not going to read all of them, but I am going to read the first seven verses and then verse 12 where Jesus nails them for rejecting him, and it's because of their pride. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses' seat was the seat up in front of the synagogue where you would sit to read the Torah for the service. You can still see a replica of one in the synagogue, in the ruins of the synagogue at Chorazin today uh, in Israel. Verse 3, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's called a show. That's called acting. That's why Jesus picked the Greek word, hypocritos, actor, for the word describing this. Somebody who is something different in public than they are in private. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. Who doesn't? They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and called rabbi by others. Go down to verse 12. Here he sums it up. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Pride is one of the, by far, greatest reasons. As far as we know, it was the first sin. It's one of the greatest sins. There are degrees of sin, and pride is one of the worst. It is the one that brought down Lucifer. And it still infects the culture, and it infects religious people. A lot of you know the name Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford scholar, he wrote a lot about this kind of things, and he said, you know, here's the problem with pride. It is, he called it the complete anti-God state of mind. And he said, what makes it so insidious and so evil is you can't look up to God when you're always looking down on others. In John chapter 3, Jesus said, light has come into the, dark, into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light. And so the great danger of pride is, it's, is, Lewis went on to say, he called it spiritual cancer, absolute spiritual cancer. 
because it sets us up over God. It makes us the judge, not God the judge. Classic example, I shared this last service, of someone doing something like this in just a very brash, uh, overt way. Uh, during college one year, I went and attended, I'm not sure why, but I did, attended a Unitarian church one day, and there was a rabbi speaking, which intrigued me, a rabbi speaking in a Unitarian church. Okay, this ought to be interesting. So I went and listened to this. He was a humanistic rabbi. That's what he called himself, rabbi of humanism. He then went on to describe that he did not believe in God, even though he was an active rabbi. And then he went on to talk about his heroes of the faith, Darwin, Freud, Nietzsche. And he threw out biblical characters and said, we need to get rid of those, get back to the real heroes of the secular enlightenment and all that. And then at one point, he said this, and this is where I shuddered a bit. He said, the humanist attitude is that if there is a God and you meet him after death, you would say to him, nice universe, but I have a few complaints. Close quote. He literally said that I was sitting in the audience listening to him. That is one of the most blatant examples of it. Nonetheless, pride infects us. Some are noisy about their pride. Some are very quiet about their pride. And by the way, pride doesn't just affect us on an individual level. It infects cultures and it affects nations. Classic, classic example is the League of Nations, established in 1920 after World War One. And then, and then that evolved into the United Nations after World War II. But the first, uh, the League of Nations was the first attempt, really, at a worldwide intergovernmental organization whose mission was to try and maintain world peace. Now, that's a joke because they, all these attempts leave out Christ and leave out references to God. The chief architect of the League of Nations was Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, who actually won a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts and his role in the uh, League of Nations. Once the League was deemed a failure after World War II, then that evolved into the United Nations. Very similar charter, very similar point, uh, goal. But the point is this. Mankind, ladies and gentlemen, young people, hear this. Mankind, human beings, cannot secure world peace and world security when they leave out the Prince of Peace. It is absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Psalm 2 puts it this way. Almost as if this is kind of a precursor to things like the League of Nations or United Nations. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain or plan in vanity? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and scoffs at them. So pride. Fourthly, overly familiar with Jesus. Mark chapter 6. As we move along, fret not, we will end before 3 o'clock. <laughs> Promise. Mark chapter 6, overly familiar with Jesus. Many people reject Jesus because it's all just too familiar. Young people, I'm not trying just to pick on young people today, but that's when we make a lot of big decisions in life. But young people, adults, you who are older and closer to meeting Jesus, most likely, all of us here this morning, you can become so familiar with spiritual things. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, all of us, clergy especially. I'll pick on myself. We can become so familiar with spiritual things 
that we miss Christ in the process. And this is exactly why Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, there is something unusually dangerous spiritually being in the ministry because you get so used to handling spiritual things. Whether you're a missionary or in parachurch ministry or pastor or whatever it is, you get so used to handling it, it all becomes so much familiar territory. And you can miss Christ. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get his, these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? So notice, they're impressed with this teaching. And they understand that he's doing miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? This is a tiny village. This is Nazareth. Not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Not mentioned in Josephus, the Jewish historian. This is a nobody, no place, place in the middle of nowhere. This is just a tiny little village of grinding poverty, but it's a very conservative Jewish village. Isn't this the carpenter? Everybody would know him. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his hometown. He could not do any miracles there. Interesting. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And this time, it's not the people who are amazed at his teaching he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. How familiar are you with the things of God? You may be religious, you may go to church, you may sing in a choir, you may take communion, you may have been baptized. Benjamin Franklin loved to hear the preaching of George Whitfield. As far as we know, he had no interest in surrendering and bowing the knee to Jesus Christ as Savior. These are people who sit through Sunday school sermons and Sunday school and communion and cantatas and missions and ministries and may have been on mission trips. It's just all so familiar, but in the end, they miss Christ. Miss Christ. The British have a saying, no man is a hero to his own valet. No man is a hero to his own valet. Why? Because if you're a valet and you watch the person, you're around them 24 hours a day, you know their foibles, you know their flaws. They're not a hero. It's overly familiar. And it's a reason many reject Christ. All right, the fifth one. Mark chapter 10. This is the passage that Joshua read for us this morning. The fifth reason that people reject Jesus, according to Jesus, is the love of money. Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, we meet a young man who rejected Jesus because of his love of money. Let us pick up the story. It starts in verse 17. This man came to Jesus and asked him a fantastic question. As Jesus started on his way, a man came up to him, fell on his knees before him. And here's what he asked him. Good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So what, what's the question? How do I go to heaven? How do I make sure I'm right with God? Have you ever asked that? Many of us here have asked that question before. How can I make sure I don't end up in hell? 
How can I make sure I end up in the kingdom of God? Is that something that burns in you? How can I make sure I know God? And I am in a right relationship with the living Christ. If that burns in you, it was burning in this young man. Jesus offers some initial comments. Verses 18 and verse 19. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Here Jesus rattles through a number of the Ten Commandments. The series will be starting in January. Which is the essence of the moral law. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't defraud. And honor your father and mother. The man responds, teacher, I've done all this since I was a boy. So here we have a Jewish individual. His heart is burning within him. He wants to make sure he's right with God. He clearly has been somewhat of a synagogue-going, Torah-honoring Jew who's tried to obey the Ten Commandments. In verse 20, Jesus declared... I mean, in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I like that, that he added, Jesus loved him. Something in this young man sparked love for him. One thing you lack. You can almost see Jesus' piercing eyes here. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, question, do you earn your salvation by giving to the poor? That's one misunderstanding of this text. Another misunderstanding of this text is that Jesus is telling every single Christian all through history, sell everything, give it to the poor. Some have taken it that way. He's not saying that either. He is putting his finger on this man's problem. We are commanded to be generous in the Bible. If you're a Christian, you're commanded. We're under obligation to be generous with our income. And if we're not, there's a curse on us. The Bible is very clear. But that's not what this is about. Jesus putting his finger on this man's problem. And what was this man's problem? It wasn't money. It was his love of money. It wasn't his affluence. It was his addiction to his affluence. That was the issue here. His addiction to money. Bible's very clear. Money in itself is not evil. It's intrinsically amoral. Money's not bad. Money's good. You can get things. We, we all, all kinds of things with money. A lot of rich people in the Bible. It is very clear God made him rich. But here's the issue according to the Bible. Okay? This is very important to understand. Prosperity is not always wrong. But the Bible's very clear. Prosperity is always dangerous spiritually. No exceptions. Always dangerous spiritually. Because money has an intrinsic ability to distract us from the kingdom of God. And so prosperity, as our portfolio increases, as our net worth increases, there is an increasing danger that our heart will be drawn away and we will end up loving money. And that is exactly what happened here. And so Jesus issued regular warnings about the distraction power of money more than he issued warnings about heaven and hell. He talked about the great danger of money and the Ironic thing is, most people who are addicted to money, who are consumed by wealth, are emphatic that they're not in love with money. And that's one of the great deceptions of it all. Lastly, John chapter 6. Oh, we need more time to do all these, but we don't have time. But John chapter 6, one other 
clear indication from Jesus why people reject him. This one's very important also. According to Jesus, many reject him because God is not drawing them. And again, this comes right from the lips of Jesus. According to Jesus, many reject him because God is not drawing them. John 6 is a long chapter. We're going to pick up at verse 63. And we pick up right in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are full of the Spirit and life. That is a great statement about the authority of God's Word and the power of God's Word because it's God-breathed, according to the Apostle Paul. The Spirit gives life. Flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are full of the Spirit and full of life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. It's amazing. We can sit in a worship service. We can listen to God-anointed sermons over the years from different people. We can listen to the Bible being read and preached. We can listen to the sermon on the radio or on the internet and be unfazed by it. And it's always interesting to me how people can come out of the same sermon, same service, and have absolutely polar opposite reactions to it. That happens on a somewhat regular basis, even with me. One person will thank me, and the next person is very upset. Just interesting, our responses. 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you, and here it comes. No one can come to me. And remember the difference between can and may. May is permission, can is ability. No one is able to come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. That's a tragic verse. Whenever Jesus walked through a crowd, he was looking for where God was at work. And Jesus knew that for someone to be able to accept his claims and embrace him and surrender to him, God had to be drawing that person. He makes a very interesting statement in John chapter 10. I want you to just listen to it. One sentence. And I want you to think about it for a second. I'm going to parse the sentence. John chapter 10, he said to an audience, some of you don't believe because you're not my sheep. He said, you don't believe, he was accusing me, a lot of these were Jewish people. He said, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now think about, we've got to use logic here for a second. Believing, he wasn't saying believing makes them a sheep. So that's the way a lot of people read the verse. Oh, if you believe you're a sheep, he doesn't say that. He says, being a sheep makes you able to believe. Why? Because the Father had drawn them. Share a story in the first service. I'm going to share it here because it's one of my favorite stories. We read the story of David Brainerd out loud to our kids when they were growing up. One of the greatest missionaries back in the 1700s. Almost became a son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards, except he died. Uh, not Edwards, but David Brainerd died before he could marry Jerusha Edwards, Edwards' daughter, who actually Jerusha uh, actually uh, took care of and tended David Brainerd on his deathbed. He died of tuberculosis in his late 20s. And then unfortunately, Jerusha contracted tuberculosis and she also died. But David Brainerd, quick story, and it illustrates this principle perfectly that just because the word of God goes out, God isn't equally at work everywhere. And this has to do with one of the most famous stories in David Brainerd's life. So it's the winter of 1743. It's a great day to tell the story on, just picture outdoors. David Brainerd is out preaching and he, 
He had a heart for Native American Indian tribes. So he's out in the Northeast preaching. He spends an entire year at a place called Kiwanameek in Massachusetts. And even though he's dying of tuberculosis slowly, he gave it everything he had for a year. He preached gospel-centered sermons. He labored. He catechized. He did everything he could. And by the end of a year, nobody, according to his journals, his journals, by the way, have been in print for over 250 years. Jonathan Edwards took his journals and made them into one of the greatest missionary biographies of all time. Nobody came to faith. So David Brainerd eventually moved on from there for 12 months. And then in March of 1744, he left Kiwanameek and he went on to an area north of Philadelphia called the Forks of the Delaware. And there again, he set up camp and did the same thing for the next 12 months or so. Preached the gospel, labored away, preached, labored, preached, labored. And after the end of the year, exactly nobody believed. And then in the summer of 1745, he heard about a group of Native American Indians that were north, and he went, he went to an area in New Jersey where God seemed to be moving across weeks. And he did the same exact thing, except with less strength than he'd had previously. Preached the same sermons, did the same thing. And he said the Spirit of God moved mightily exactly what Jesus is saying here. No one can come unless the Father enables him. Why did all the Native Americans in Cross Weeks and suddenly respond and the people at Forks of the Delaware in Kwanameek not? It's the mystery of God's Spirit. Mystery of God's Spirit. I want you to hear what he actually wrote. He wrote one sentence on August 6th, 1745 that summarizes everything about the Cross Weeks and Indians. And by the way, after a year of preaching there, he had almost 150 baptized converts in this small Native American Indian village. Quote, after preaching there for a number of months and watching this revival break out in Cross Weekson, quote, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel. God was drawing sinners at cross weeks. And we want to ask, why doesn't God draw everybody? That's what I ask. I mean, that's kind of my initial response. Why doesn't he save every sinner? The Bible flips that around and says, look it, in light of depravity and pride and the rebellion and stubbornness of the human heart and the cruelty and wickedness in the human heart, the question isn't, why doesn't God choose everybody? It's, why does God choose anybody? Why does God choose any sinner? But it's clear he does. God delights in having mercy and he delights in showing judgment. Both. He's glorified in whatever he does. Romans 9, 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. So the Christmas question when we look at these reasons this morning is this. Do any of these reasons describe you? Are any of these reasons, reasons you're holding back from Christ? Are you sure you know the living Christ and it's not all overly familiar with you? Have you been born again? Owned it personally? Not mom and dad's faith. Your faith. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus gives three commands for any who want to follow him and know Christ. Ready? One, repent. Repent means I stop playing the blame game, I own my sin, and I grieve over it, and I change directions. Number two, believe. Believe means you're all in. You're all in. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just head knowledge. Though you have to have head knowledge. <laughs> you gotta, that's very critical. But then it's owning it and living by it. And the third command is, he said, then follow me. The evidence, I know Christ, 
is a new hunger. The things that didn't matter to me suddenly matter to me. And Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He's not saying you earn your salvation by following his commands. He is saying if you're truly born again, there will be an increasing hunger to obey him and an increasing obedience to his commands. And what is the very first command Jesus gives to any Christ follower? And it is to be immersed under water as a public identification with him. And so if you're here this morning and you know Christ and you have not been, we have a couple of baptism services set up this year. I hope you will take advantage because they are some of our greatest services as we hear stories firsthand how people came to know Christ. And then they step in obedience into the waters of baptism.